we built an art school a magnet program to integrate right. right but then you end up with um, the majority of the students who again are students of color are told you can't go in that really nice little space over there with all the beautiful equipment right because wow. we don't trust you joining us for Let's Talk About Race, produced by Together We Stand NC. I'm your host, Tyrone Irby. Today's guest is Jake Kavanaugh. Jake has spent the last two decades as an educator and a designer. His career has spanned from Chicago to Tampa to Maine, and now he resides in Oxford and teaches at Durham Academy. We will talk diversity, race, and even designing a set for Bruce Springsteen at the Super Bowl. Let's welcome Jake Cavanaugh to Let's Talk About Race. Jake, how you feeling? I'm feeling good. Feeling all right. Jake, tell us about yourself. So let's see. Uh, I am 48. <laughs> I'm pushing 50. I, uh, I have a background in theater design. Uh, I went to a performing arts high school down in Florida, um, and I then, it was a magnet school, uh, which is sort of important to note, I think, as we talk about this, but we can get to that. Um, I was into theater from the moment I got there at the age of 14 and sort of studied that all the way through and then decided to go to college for that. Uh, went to school in Chicago, uh, DePaul University and got my Bachelor's of Fine Arts in, um, in set design, specifically. My plan was to go to graduate school, go to New York, go to LA, one of those, and then I sort of fell into teaching. I worked in the summers for a summer program at Northwestern University for theater, and then someone offered me a job teaching part-time at a high school, uh, a private school in Chicago. What, what drew you into theater? So, you know, it's funny, I, I've always been into the arts, but then when I got to, uh, so when I got to Sarasota, Florida, it was part of a magnet school, um, but the middle school was not. But we would go see shows at the upper, or the high school, you know, it was a public school. And um, I was into it. Then uh, they asked for, um, or they, they had started a design tech program essentially and they, uh, they do interviews to get into the program. And I thought, well, I'm just going to check it out. I knew nothing. Uh, actually, the head of the program, his name is Ken Wiegers. He uh, talked to us about you know, special effects and lighting and all these things that sounded really cool. And I didn't know much about it, but I decided to go ahead and interview. And I got in, and I was in love from the moment I started. I loved building. I loved you know, working on lights. I loved all of it. So that's sort of how that played out. Okay, so you started teaching in Chicago, right? I started teaching in Chicago, yeah. And again, just sort of by accident. I didn't realize that's the direction I was going to go. But I hadn't even quite graduated when someone gave me the opportunity to work at the school. It's Francis Parker. And I decided to, um, I decided to sort of skip out on the idea of moving out of Chicago and kept working there for another year or so, year and a half. And then I uh, had the opportunity to go down back to Florida to help open a performing arts high school in Tampa. Okay, how was so. that? And how had that come about? Because I would probably say you, you opened up a, a performance arts high school from scratch. So, right. So I had been in touch with my old mentor, Ken Wiegers, that I was just mentioning in Sarasota. And I told him, you know, I, I think I want to teach. I love this. And I, I wanted to find a program that was really serious about the arts, right? And he had heard that they were building a new performing arts high school in Tampa. So I reached out to the school district and they had me come in for an interview and they didn't even know what they needed. They, they hadn't, you know, it was a public school system, right? They were just building a big school right. for millions of dollars, but they didn't know how to deal with the theater. Um, 
And so I remember sitting in the interview with the supervisor of the English program and the, the head of what, the new principal of the school and some other people. And, and they, were, they said, well, what's a technical director? And I said, well, that's the person that's gonna take care of all the technical needs in the theater. And you're gonna need somebody. <laughs> you need somebody to handle this if you're opening a new program. And so they hired me. They hired me pretty much right on the spot. And I went back to Chicago and told the head of, and, and you know, the reason I was looking was partly because they were still just offering me a part-time job down in, or up in Chicago. And so I told them I'm gonna leave, I'm gonna move to Florida. And um, it was interesting, so the head of that school who had only been paying me at that point like $14,000 a year, oh. was uh, he brought me in three times throughout the rest of that school year, offered me a bigger and bigger contract to stay. No change in my teaching responsibilities, they just knew that they needed to keep me on board. So he would lay out a piece of paper and a pen and say, what do you think of that? And I would look at the number and I'm like, that's really great, but I'm not doing it. Like, I'm gonna, you know, you sort of lost your chance. We talked yeah, about this. Yeah. And um, so he did that three times. It kept growing astronomically compared to what I was making at 14,000 a year, I think. So anyway, so then I, uh, I left. I just picked up and I bought a little Ford Ranger pickup truck and towed a trailer down to Tampa. I had no idea what I was in for. I had no idea like what school was gonna be like. Uh, what my teaching responsibilities would be like. I had never taught in a public school. I had never really taught, you know, for a full day. I was working part-time, right? right? I was freelancing as a designer. So everything about it was scary. So what was your first experience in a public school? Now, we're looking at Tampa, Florida, and what, about what year? So this was 95, I think, 96. No, 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 I'm sorry. This would have been like 96, 97, I guess, may have been the it was somewhere in that range. 97, 98, okay. I actually don't remember. And how diverse was that high school? It was, it was uh, probably 60% uh, black students, uh, or students of color for sure. Um, I can't remember the exact numbers, but there was, the majority were what you would call minority students, right? right? This was a magnet school, so the whole intention there is the, the program, the school, the public school that was in that area of Tampa had been shut down during desegregation, right? Okay. So they hadn't had a school where they weren't busing their students all over the area for years. And so they built this new magnet school to essentially bus in white kids, right? I mean, that's okay. sort of the idea of it. So um, to still create a diverse area. The craziest part about it was this was a school, this was, you know, these are not, this, this neighborhood didn't need an arts school. Mm -hmm. They needed a magnet school that maybe was gonna teach, uh, you know, trades and things they could go on to college and, and make a good living at. Arts are not necessarily the way that's gonna work, right? So why, so why did they choose to have an art school there well, if that wasn't the I, best I, option? I, my hunch is, I mean, I, I didn't make that decision, but I assume that it has to do with, there's money in a pool for an art school Right. There's a neighborhood that needs a magnet program. Let's plop them together. Them yeah. But it did cause some friction because what we ended up with was a, a really beautiful school, but a really amazing arts center, right? The whole theater and the music rooms and the art rooms, it was the most expensive arts, uh, or the most expensive school that had been built in Florida at that time. Wow. Now, I'm sure it's way low compared to what it is now, right? What it costs. But it was expensive and the theater was a huge chunk of that. And when we opened that up, the first thing that started happening was we said, okay, none of the kids who are zoned to the school but not in the arts program can come into the building. So wow. it, if you can imagine what that means, it means we built an arts school, a magnet program to integrate, right? right? But then you end up with um, the majority of the students who again are students of color, are told you can't go in that really nice little space over there with all the beautiful equipment, right? Because wow. we don't trust you. So when you have a magnet school, the zoning is out. So if you are zoned for that school, because I remember when I was um, growing up in New York City, um, I was zoned for a school in Bedford-Stuyvesant. My mother did not want me to go to Boys High, uh, Boys and Girls High, I believe. So I took a bus uh, to Flatbush, maybe right. two hours away, 
because she felt that was a better opportunity for her right. to learn. Right. So the way this worked at this particular magnet school is you had to interview or audition to get into the arts program, the magnet part of the school, okay. right? If you were selected, um, and it wasn't by lottery, like here in Durham, we have Durham School of the Arts, and that's a lottery. Right. Like you don't have to audition, you don't have to apply, I mean, you don't have to interview, you just put in for the lottery. At this school in Tampa, you had to do the interview or the audition. If you were chosen, then they would bust you in from wherever you happen to be. So that so there's, it's not that the kids in the neighborhood couldn't have gotten into the magnet program. And in fact, I had some kids that, that I got into my program that were local. But for the most part, you know, the kids who were, were coming for the arts program were not coming from the neighborhood. I mean, we were right smack in the middle of what at that time would have been called the projects. So we were talking about the fact that it was a, the magnet program, right? right? So we have students who are interviewing, auditioning to get into the program. Those students are generally, if they are selected, they're then bust in, or if they happen to be right there in the neighborhood, fine, they get to walk across the street and come in, right? But that's not necessarily the student body that was auditioning for the arts program or interviewing for the arts program, right? Those are not the students that were right there in that zoned area, the sort of rougher, um, the lower income uh, housing area that was right there around the school. And those are the ones I'm talking about who really needed something different than an arts program, right? And I, I don't know if that makes total sense, but it, that's sort of, so there was, there was a lot of animosity, okay. you know? It's, it, the school, first of all, I said it was a really nice school. It was, it was brand new, but it did, like all public schools, have sort of the appearance of a prison, right? right. It's just right. a, it was a three-story tall, because it was on a very small plot of land. Three-story tall, all brick, small windows. It, it looked a little bit, but then it was on a river. Things have changed a lot in that area, by the way, now. I mean, gentrification especially. Right. So a lot of that housing area, the low-income housing area is gone, and now there's beautiful, like, big, expensive places, right? But the school was right on the river, but what was actually on the riverside was the football field was on the river, but the arts center was on the river. Okay. So all the other classrooms were just in a three-story high brick building without the beautiful view, without the access to just sort of wander around. You know, art students, we'd go out and we'd wander around out by the river, and they didn't have that kind of. So, you know, so you've got all these kids that were excited to go back to their neighborhood school. They right. hadn't seen one, you know, generations hadn't seen it, right? So their parents hadn't seen a school in their neighborhood. But then they are told, but don't go into that really pretty building with all those expensive seats that you're gonna ruin wow. if you put your feet up on it, right? Wow. So, you know, we had challenges. We had, you know, uh, lunch duty involved me making sure that kids didn't come from the lunchroom and sneak into the arts building. Wow. And, and, and there was no, there was no effort on the part of the administration that I saw to make that a more comfortable fit. Right. In their defense, it was a brand new school. Everybody was new. Figuring out how to make this whole thing work was tough. How long did you stay there? So I was there, I think, three years. I left because I had gotten involved with someone who wanted to move away. And I said, I'll move away. So I left. Okay. What I know I'm not to? being very clear, but um, I moved to the East Coast. So she wanted to be a pilot. Okay. So she left teaching to go be a pilot. And I decided I would go to graduate school. So I left to go to graduate school. But it was a mistake. It was a mistake on a lot of reasons. Like I didn't want to be with her anymore. But beyond that, it was the best job I had ever had. Okay. And I've done a lot of cool things since. I, you know, I've designed, I've not designed, I've been an art director for Super Bowl halftime shows. I've been an art director on, uh, you know, for concerts for Beyonce, Black Eyed Peas, all kinds of stuff. Working at that school was the best job I ever had. Wow. It was, it, I was, I was, I was making a difference. You know, I was really affecting students in a positive way. I felt really good about the program we were building and I felt really good about the students that I could touch, you know, their lives, even the ones who weren't in the program, I 
you know, I had a homeroom. Um, I think I told you this story. I had a homeroom where the very first day of classes, I was the only white person in that whole room and oh. it was packed. I mean, there weren't enough desks for all the kids. And they looked at me like, who is this idiot, right? I mean, he doesn't look like he knows what he's doing, which I didn't. I was 26 maybe at the time, 25, I don't know. It seems like a lifetime ago. Um, but those kids, you know, they were a part of my world from then on. Even when I sort of spent most of my time in the theater, those kids were still part of my world, right? right? And so right. I, loved, I loved working there. Okay. I, I was the announcer for the football team uh, the soccer team, you know, like the the play-by-play -play stuff, or I wasn't very good at the play-by-play. -play. I wasn't very good at any of it. Like, and there was one time I was watching a uh, a game, and uh, I was on the microphone, and the kid, one of our kids, was taken off, and and I was like, he's at the thirty, he's at the forty, he's at the fifty, he's at the sixty. Oh and man! Everybody turns around and looks oh, up. Oh man! Who are you? It was great though. I loved everything about the school. You know, I loved being a part of those Friday nights, you know, for the games. I loved doing the same thing for the soccer team. I loved the marching band was amazing. Um, and I loved what we did in the theater. We had a beautiful theater and a, I had a beautiful shop and I had all kinds of freedom because, you know, the arts don't fit into a normal right. school structure. Right. So half the time the administration doesn't even know or care what you're up to as long as you know you're not hurting anybody <laughs> well jake let's take a break uh sure. for a minute to come back okay sounds good the best conversations are over a delicious beer mark your calendars for the 5k for unity sponsored by together we stand nc on saturday july 17th 2021 at 11 a.m. Five locations in North Carolina. Divine Barrow Brewing in Charlotte. Foothills Brewing, Winston-Salem. Little Brother Brewing, Greensboro. Pony Source Brewing in Durham. And Bacino Brewing Company in Carborough. Visit TogetherWeStandNC.com for updates and more information. So Jake, let's talk about when and why you decided to open up your own business. Sure. So I, I told you I was in, on the east coast of Florida and I knew that it was time for a change. Things weren't working the way I needed them to work in my life. I ended up uh, making a long wave around from Dallas, which is where my, my parents were at the time. So I sort of retreated and lived at home for a little bit. And then I uh, found a job at... Uh, boarding school in Massachusetts. And that was a whole new world, right? I, literally living with the students and you know, with them 24 seven essentially. Right. But I was still doing the same thing, still theater design. Then I met my current wife, my, my only wife, I met my wife in, uh, uh, she was living in Maine and I was living in Massachusetts. And so I left that job. I was actually the department chair at that point and I left and went to uh, live in Maine. Okay. When I got to Maine, or as I was making that transition, there were no school positions like what I was used to teaching in, right? There was no performing arts high schools, there were no theater programs of any sort in Maine. Um, not that I found. And this was when? This was like the 90s? Still, this would or? have been, we got married in 2003. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, and then I, um, so I found a job at a, at a, professional theater in um, in Maine. Okay. Lewiston, Maine, right down the road from Bates College, actually, is where I was living. And, um, and I worked there for a season, and it was the worst experience of my life. Wow. It, the, the artistic director and his wife, who were co-artistic directors, were just miserable to work with. It was really, really hard on me. And I knew there weren't a lot of other jobs available. Okay. And in what I was used to, right? So I told him, I said, I'm going to leave. I can't do this. This is making me miserable. But it means I'm going to leave the thing I've been doing since I was 14. Like I'm literally, I'm so miserable at this theater, I'm quitting and I'm going to move on and never do this again. 
Did you ever think about, at that time, going back to your school in, in Tampa? I thought about it many times. So my wife uh, had a two-and-a-half-year-old when I met her. So my stepson was there, and his father was there in Maine. And so within a year after we were married, we were already talking about maybe we should pick up and move back to Tampa. Because okay. Tampa, I never lost touch with anybody. Right. So there were still people that were saying, come back. We'd love to have you back, right? Um, one thing I've learned, you can't ever really go back, right? It's right. It, it's a different school now. It's a different place. Yep. That was changed. a special time. Kids have changed. Right. Everything's changed a little bit. For right. But, but we wanted to. But, you know, my stepson is very, very close with his father. And there was just no chance of picking up and just dragging him away from Maine. Right. So, so I'm working at that theater. Um, I leave. I end up getting a job. I had a, I had a lot of jobs, but I ended up at an exhibit design company, which I never knew anything about, trade show exhibits. And I started working for them. And so Tell me, what does that um, entail, I guess you might Yeah, say. so it, it jives with what I had been doing as a theater designer, honestly, as a set designer. Okay. Uh, except it's different materials, right? It's high-end extrusions and plastics and, you know, the kind of stuff that you don't build a set out of for a stage, right? Because okay. you can't afford to. Um, but it's for trade shows. And so, you know, a, a company like Coca-Cola, right? They are going to do a trade show at a big event and they hire a company like what we had and they ask you to build a display. Because I had a background in set design, I was pretty successful there because we had a client, one client in particular who came to us at one point and said, we want a themed trade show booth. Meaning, we're going, what they said is, we're going to do a show in uh, Houston, Texas, and we want it to be themed like Texas, right? And I was okay. born in Texas, I didn't mention that, but um, so I know Texas. But this was like, you know, what is the sort of Disney-esque theme that would jive with Texas, okay. right? So I designed this um, really cool uh, uh, saloon experience. So people would come in through saloon doors, come into the show and experience all that that company was offering. That's kind of cool. And so we started that, that started a trend every year. They wanted to do a different theme for a different city they were going to. So like we did uh, Salt Lake City, I designed a big ski lodge, did a show in Detroit, I designed a, a 50s drive-in movie theater kind of experience. Uh, anyway, I had a lot of success with them. This company uh, ended up shutting down their operations in Maine and moved to Nashville or outside of Nashville. But they kept me on as their, I was the design director at that point. I worked from my home office. So this is a long segue around to tell you that I ended up working with uh, Tribe Design, which is where I did these Super Bowl halftime shows and all of those things, um, while I was I was sort of moonlighting for him while I was okay. working working for this exhibit company, and then I finally said I'm I'm done with the exhibit company. I wasn't happy with what was happening there, and the client that I was doing all of these theme trade show booths for wanted to leave also. So we essentially agreed I'll start a new business and you'll be my first client. And so I kept working for Bruce Rogers and Tribe Design and kept doing concerts and shows. And then I started my own company, JK Designs, and I started doing trade show booths and mobile tours and that sort of thing. How difficult was it for you to make that decision? Because I know as an entrepreneur, um, we're looking at what year now, 2005, somewhere uh, around there? Yeah, I guess that, yeah, that's probably about right. God, is that right? 2005. Actually, it was a little it. later than that, but yeah. How, what was the mindset of just saying, you know what, I've got to go, do my own thing, do my way? So I had, I had a really good cushion, right? I had already started doing this work for Bruce Rogers, um, so there was that income. But I also knew how much I needed to survive, like for us as a family to, to pay the bills. Right. And this, this client, I knew how much we had already agreed. This is what you'll pay me as a retainer to do the work. This is what you'll pay me for the show every year, that the big show, plus all the other small shows. So I had a safety net. I had like a built-in contract the moment I okay. opened doors. That's good. So I found the cheapest, most 
you know, rundown warehouse and rented it. And that only lasted a few months because it was so rundown. And then I moved to another place and another place until I, I just kept growing at that point because then one client led to another client to another client to the point where I was doing all this really exciting work with Bruce Rogers. And I said, well, I can't afford to hire people to do the work I'm doing for JK Designs and do your work. So I either need to make more money doing just the art director stuff, right. or I'm gonna have to leave and work just for myself. And he said, well, I, you know, I can't pay you much more you know, than what I'm already paying you. And he was paying me well. And so I made the choice to leave. Which again, maybe, you know, it depends on how you look at the world, right? I, like I've been able to do a lot of great things and a lot of exciting things and I, I had great success with that business but I miss the work I did with him. Mm-hmm. You know, he still does the Super Bowl every year, and every year I'm like, oh god, uh, that would be so much fun. Which Super Bowl did you do? So I did. I, I don't remember the numbers. We did the the one for the Who, which was in Miami, okay. and that one we were Emmy nominated for, which was great. Um, I did the the first one was for Bruce Springsteen in nice. Tampa, nice, and then uh, Black Eyed Peas in Dallas. Uh, what else? I guess that it was those three. And there was a, I mean, he's busy. There was a lot of stuff in between. Wow. The Eminem and, um, and. Did you say they do something for Beyonce? Yeah, Beyonce uh, performed at the, uh, the Glastonbury. Am I saying that right? I hope. Uh, festival. And uh, in Scotland. That? In Scotland. Oh, wow. And so she was the headliner for that. Um, I, we did a lot of, he did a lot of, he did, well, we did country music award shows, the CMA awards, the people's choice awards, um, and just a lot of different concerts. So you had, so it sounds like one of the things that you really developed before you opened up your own business was a lot of contacts, plus a lot of experience with dealing with different people. Because I, I know I can imagine the people you have to deal with for those big shows. Um, I know that had to be challenging. So I tell you, so the, the coolest thing I did for him uh, with, when I was with Tribe was in 2008 when Barack Obama was elected. Okay. And we did, Bruce had been doing the Democratic Convention. And then uh, he, I don't know how many times he's done that now, but when he did, when Barack Obama was um, was elected, we did the inaugural ball. Oh wow! And that was a, you know, it was a big deal when he was elected, yeah. right? So that was we called it the neighbor. It was called the neighborhood ball, because it was supposed to be sort of open to the world, right? right. And so, but there were a lot of big acts there, and um, I remember being on the phone with Secret Service to talk about like the drawings that I had done and where people were going to be and you know all of this stuff. But it was just exciting to be a part of all of that. I wasn't there. I was. This was right when I started working with Bruce, to be honest. And I had, uh, we had done the Bruce Springsteen Super Bowl halftime show. I had been working on uh, a big event he was designing for the NHL, which was um, like the Hall of, no, not Hall of Fame, uh, uh, All Star Break. Okay. It was a big event for the All Star Break. So I was in Montreal, freezing my ass off. Um, while he was at the inaugural ball, wow. so wow. I missed out on the excitement. <laughs> but um, I'll tell you something funny. So that call with the Secret Service, you know, that's intimidating, right? You're on the phone yeah, with Secret absolutely. Service, and they're like, so how are we handling security? You know, where are people going to be here? And they're telling us what we have to do. When I worked for the uh, exhibit design company, I did a project for Gillette when the Mach 5, or not Mach, whatever, one of the big razors came out. You know, it was a big launch and it was totally secret. It was more intimidating working with the security firm for Gillette than it was the Secret Service. They were serious about their corporate stuff, right? So we were on the phone with people from Gillette and they really gave you the impression they would show up in black helicopters on the roof if you screwed up. This is how I want you to secure every day at the end of the day, where you're gonna put all the information, where you're gonna put all the drawings. You're not gonna see any of this till the last moment. So they were, what, afraid someone's gonna steal the design? Yeah, the whole idea is like, we've come up with a razor that has 
five blades, right? And if that's what it was, I don't remember now. And and if somebody else finds out about it before we launch, that screws up everything. Yeah, so yeah. like we didn't get to see the razor, we didn't get to see images that were gonna go in all the stuff until the last second. So I built a model for that of what the event tour, it was gonna be a summer tour, a big semi truck with a big stage that opened up and there would be um, shaving going on, like sample shavings and stuff, right? Wow. But they didn't want that built until the last second. I built a scale model of it that then we brought down to Orlando for a huge nationwide sales meeting for Gillette where they launched, like all their salespeople didn't even know about it, right? So it was, it was a bizarre experience. Wow. How um, long did you do JK Designs? So uh, about 10 years, I think, uh, in all. So I... God, now I've lived here for what, eight years? So I think the final year was uh, over a year ago now. So, you know, I had been in Maine uh, for 10 years total, mm -hmm. but the business I probably was there in Maine for three years. When I left, I had, you know, I had a production manager and I had other staff that were was doing the work in the warehouse. And at that point I had a 10,000 square foot space and you know, we were doing a lot of projects. And so when I moved here, when I first met you, the business was the only thing I was doing and I um, was just working from home. So I would travel back and forth to Maine all the time and I would travel mostly to wherever the clients were, right. generally not in Maine. And that's when I found Durham Academy where I'm at now because I, I was dying to get back to teaching. It's what I missed. And so I lucked into a job right away working, doing some shows at Durham Academy. Jay, let's go take a break right now and come back and talk about the transition from your own business to Durham Academy. Sure. So let's talk about the transition from JK Designs to Durham Academy. Sure. Um, and also, let's talk about the difference between teaching at Durham Academy in Durham, North Carolina versus 10 years ago teaching in Tampa, Florida. Right. So, and, and keep in mind in between that was the boarding school, right. which was also right. a whole other right. experience, right? So, which, which you didn't like at all. Oh, I did. No, no, no. No, I liked it. I think uh, it was the theater job that I told you okay. I didn't like. No, I, I enjoyed working at the boarding school. I think the problem at the boarding school for me was that I was lonely. Northfield, Massachusetts is beautiful, but it was, it's out in Western Massachusetts. There's not a lot going on other than, you know, if you're an outdoorsy person, it's awesome. But I was, I was lonely and then I met my wife. And so, you know, then I moved on with my life. Okay. So, but it was a good school, but um, it's a great school. Uh, so, but I miss teaching. And so when I got down to, you know, when we made the decision First of all, when we made the decision to move from Maine, my wife grew up in Maine. She had never left. Um, and in fact, I think when she flew down to Florida to meet my family, it was only her second flight. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so uh, now she's flown lots of places. But uh, that was her. So, you know, she was ready to leave Maine. I was ready to leave Maine. I was ready for a change. I was ready to get back to teaching. So I was looking for that opportunity. So did you look in North Carolina? Is I that, did. Did you guys have an, an, an idea about where you want to go? So because if I'm looking at uh, between you know Florida and uh, Maine, there's a pretty big change right. in level of diversity in those right. two states. In those so states. so you bring up a good point because the thing I haven't touched on is that I really didn't like living in Maine. Maine is one of the whitest places on the planet. I had grown up in a very diverse world. The performing arts high school that I went to was a magnet school just like the one I taught at in Tampa. Okay. So we were probably 50-50 in terms of minority versus uh, you know white students when I grew up. But my world was diverse. My children were growing up in a very white world right. in Maine and I didn't like it. And I was ready to make a change. And, I, and so we, we knew very little about the diversity in North Carolina. What we knew is that we needed to get further south, 
And my family lives in Florida now, and her family lives in Maine. And so we thought North Carolina seemed like a good middle point. Right. What I failed to realize is once you're not near one of the families, it's hard to decide how you're going to travel every time you have an opportunity, right? I should have just, we should have just moved all the way to Florida, and then we could have just flown back to Maine to see our family. Anyway. Um, so we had driven through North Carolina, and we thought it was beautiful. We drove in through the Raleigh-Durham area and decided we really liked it. Uh, I had a vacation around my birthday, which is the end of June, and I said, why don't we drive to North Carolina for my birthday? Just spend a week there. And then as we started talking, I said, why don't I start looking to see if there's any jobs while I'm there? We had not talked about moving at that point. I mean, we had talked about it in theory, but we had never really gotten serious about it. But my business was going well. My father-in-law was my production manager. He was handling things really well. And I, I said, um, so I, I looked for some jobs. There were two jobs listed for technical directors, which is very rare in one city. Jordan High School and Riverside. Riverside, okay. yeah. And I contacted both of them. Keep in mind, it's summer. It's not easy to find a job in the summer, right. you know, but they had positions, so I contacted them. Jordan never responded, uh, and Riverside did. And I drove here. We, again, we were supposed to be on vacation. We immediately started looking for homes, like oh, the wow. minute we drove in. My poor kids were like, what's happening? How did this go from a vacation to looking for a new place to live? What made you, did you feel comfortable in North Carolina? Is that what changed? We change? were ready for change. That's it. We didn't know anything. We got lucky because we love this area, but we got lucky. Like we could have just as easily gone to Charlotte, right. which I had been to Charlotte for business multiple times and I thought it was a beautiful city, but that wouldn't have been the right place for us. Mindset wise, it's, it's not for us. Um, and so Riverside brought in all of their arts people and interviewed me. I had everybody but the theater teacher. I had the, you know, the director. But we had the music people, the art people, the, the uh, dance, and I loved them all. They were all very nice. And then I had a phone interview with the director, and I, I didn't get a good vibe. And it was a quick move, right? We, were, we literally moved in three weeks. Wow. I had lived there 10 years, longer than I had ever lived in any one place my entire life, and my wife had never been out of Maine. And we packed up the entire home in three weeks and left. Wow. And so I thought, it's not a good time for me to take on a new job that's going to be tough. Right. And, and tough because I didn't have a good vibe about the people I'd be working very closely with, the director. And so I ended up turning down that job. Durham Academy had uh, somebody who was working part-time for them doing shows. He took the job I turned down. Oh, wow. And so that's why they were listing a position when I got here. But it was it was perfect fit for me because they weren't looking for somebody to come teach a bunch of classes. They were looking for somebody to just come design and build the shows in the afternoon hours. I could work that around my business. And so I did. I, I walked in and he said, well, we just lost our guy to uh, Riverside. I was like, huh. <laughs> he left because I turned down that job. It could have been an omen right there. And so he took that job. The craziest part is they've cut that position since he took that job. So he left Durham Academy, went to Riverside, and they cut that position at some point after that. Wow. And I ended up at Durham Academy where I've grown into a full-time job there now. Um, it took a few years for them to pull together the, the budget for me to have a full-time position, but it worked out right in line with when I wanted to close my business, okay. which luckily happened right before the pandemic. That's good. So, so give me an idea about the differences between teaching, I guess, 10 years ago in Tampa. Right. And now teaching 2020, 2021 Durham Academy. Not just the schools, but the diversity and the way kids learn. Because I think that 10 years ago, we taught differently. I think we learned differently. I think, you know, parenting was different 10 years ago than it is right now. Right. Um, and being on, on the teacher side of that, I know there has to be some differences between how you taught, how you related to kids 10 years ago uh, versus how you, you relate to them right now. 
So I'll tell you a few things. One that comes to mind is before I answer that question. So it was actually, it was the end of uh, like 2000 when I left that school. So it's been 20 years now wow. since okay. I was there. And everything's different, right? There was no access to the technology like we have now. I had uh, maybe four or five desktop computers in a computer lab, a drafting lab. Um, and I didn't know much about AutoCAD at that point, but I had that to teach them. And that's all we had. Nobody was carrying around laptops everywhere. No one had a smartphone. That wasn't even something that anyone had even, it wasn't even on a radar for people, right? To think about a smartphone. Um, I remember having students, I had, uh, so the computers had filters, right? Supposedly to keep you from searching for things you shouldn't be searching right. for on the computer. I had students uh, back then at, at, uh, in Tampa at Blake, um, Blake High School, Howard W. Blake is what it was called. Um, they, I had a group of uh, girls who were doing costumes. Um, I think they were all girls on that crew, doing costumes for Fahrenheit 451, okay. which is, you know, involves some firefighter type costumes in, right. in what we were doing. They were doing searches. The next thing I know, I find that they're looking at pictures of like half naked firemen because <laughs> as they did a search for, you know, what firefighters wear, they came across websites of like these men who were posing for like calendars, calendars right? Yeah. So that was shocking. Cause I didn't know anything about computers either. Like I told you a little while ago, the first time I ever owned a computer was when I got that job. I bought my first desktop computer that, that year when I started working at Blake. Fast forward now and I have a smartphone that does things a hundred times faster than that desktop. I can open a drawing and do a drawing on my, on my smartphone or my iPad. Students are the same way, right? Students, if I, back then, if I would prepare a lecture to show them how something worked, they, it was all new to them, right? These students already know most of the software. They've seen it. Software is designed in such a way that you sort of intuitively know how things work even if you've never opened the program. You understand how the menus will work, you understand where to find information, you understand how to use help menus, you understand that you can go on YouTube and see a tutorial of almost anything. Right. None of that existed. So I can tell you that I always feel like I'm a step behind, right? If I tell them ahead of time, we're gonna talk about AutoCAD, we're gonna talk about Photoshop, I'm in trouble. They already know about it. They already know. Now, that, that's a benefit also, but it's, it's different. It's a whole different world. I can also tell you that when I taught in Tampa, I told you I felt like I made a difference, right? Mm -hmm. I really felt like I was making a difference. And one of the reasons was when I first started teaching, we hadn't finished the theater. The rest of the structure of the school had been built, but we didn't have our theater yet. So I was teaching classes filled with students that hadn't yet been auditioned or interviewed. These were just like, let's just throw kids who would normally go to a woodshop class right. into his class. But I didn't have a woodshop. That wasn't built yet. But they were, they, so they were what we called the zone kids, right? They were the kids from the neighborhood who were in my class and they were amazing. But they also had deficiencies, right? They had gone to poor elementary schools and I mean poor like academically, poorly funded, poor middle schools. And so their education was vastly different than what I would have expected, right? right? So we spent a lot of time talking about math, you know, like trying to build models and I would be talking about how to find the square footage of a space and how do you, so basic geometry right. type stuff. But I also- probably something that they really didn't have a lot of right. experience with. Right, and I also read to them a lot and it's sort of bizarre now because I don't remember how I segued into that in this class that the school thought was a shop class, but I was reading like Studs Terkel to them. Studs Terkel, has written some amazing stuff and he also spoke at my graduation from college. And so I just, I, I had this knowledge of him that I really respected his work. And so, but I was reading this book, which was stories of um, a diverse sort of population and how they came to be in Chicago mainly. I think there were stories of people who had migrated to Chicago. Um, these kids were riveted. like. They would sit there, I would read for 20 minutes of my you know, hour and a half class. 
and, and they would ask me to read more. And these are kids that I would hear talking about pulling guns over the weekend, you know, like, and they were also kids who taught me how to play dice in the back of the classroom. Okay. Like, I, you know, stuff that I wouldn't do now. I wouldn't even risk getting caught doing, but I was, I, no, I wasn't gambling, but I saw him playing dice in the back of the room. I was like, what are you doing? Like, I've seen this in movies, but you're like literally gathered around on your knees, like throwing dice against the wall. And so they were teaching me how to do that. And, but you know, I bonded with them in all kinds of ways. Um, it's very different than what I'm doing now, you know? So when you, we look at Durham Academy, for understand it has a diverse staff, diversity in their students. Um, it's a work in progress. It's a work in progress. Yeah. Okay. And I, I think every school yeah. is a work in progress. Right. Um, how did you make that transition? Because again, you hadn't taught in 20 years. Right. Right. So you're going back to the school system. So when you think about it, the kids you're teaching had been born. Right. We taught last time. Exactly. So how did you make the transition back into teaching? It, it was made easy for me um, because what I was doing was what I love, theater, technical theater, design. I started there, like I told you, just doing the shows in the afternoon, right? I uh, was very organized. I had been running a business for a lot of years. I had been running crews, you know, for trade shows and different events. I had a lot of experience with all of that. And so walking into Durham Academy with a student body who is just eager to do the shows, super excited to have somebody come in who was organized. I had a lot of time. Like I didn't, they weren't paying me much either because they were just paying me by the hour to come right. do the shows. But I didn't care because I was making plenty of money at my, my business. So it was really just an opportunity to get my foot in the door right. and work with them. So I spent a lot of time with them, but I wasn't having to be in a classroom, right? So I just got to know everybody, work with everybody, uh, and sort of just, you know, and do the shows, and the shows went well, and so everybody liked what I was doing and how it was working. So then once I transitioned to start officially being a part-time faculty member and officially teaching some classes, it was an easy transition into um, really just doing a lot of the work on shows during class time, right? We would be building during class, we would be hanging lights, I would be showing them all of these things, but it was all hands-on. Still very much like what I was doing in the after hours with their crew. Um, now I do more classroom teaching. Okay. But it's been, it's been a, and, and I do a lot more classroom teaching now that the pandemic came along. Because now I can't go work in the shop with them, you know, 10 students deep, you know, right. in a small space. So I spend a lot more time in a classroom. Okay. But it's been a such a smooth you, transition. I think you haven't done any shows since the pandemic, is that correct? We have not. We did a, um, we did, we sort of created a theater company, students created a theater company. Okay. And they did a uh, televised, or televised, a, a, we, we taped uh, a series of scenes and show stuff. And I don't, I don't, won't get into all of it, but sort of like a Saturday Night Live type okay. thing. Um, but that's all we've done. So I have been out since last, we did our musical last February and we never even finished striking everything off the stage. We went off to spring break. Normally I would have come back from spring break, cleaned up the stage. Right, we didn't now. come back. Wow. Yeah. We were told, uh, you know, that we were told before spring break, this is happening. We don't know what it's gonna mean. In a week, we may not be able to even come back on campus and sure enough, a week later, we never went back. So when I walked back in to the campus in the fall, there were still things laying on, in the hallway and um, it, was exact, it was like it was frozen in time. It was the most bizarre thing, right? Because oh. of course, who would have cleaned up my mess, right? Yeah. So there's still, but there were still things all over campus like that. The last you know, morning meeting, we have like these weekly morning meetings. Somebody had done a, 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 a thing I don't remember what it was, but whatever, it was a Mardi Gras sort of theme going on in that event. And there was still stuff outside in the hall um, on the breezeway that had been left since March. Wow. You know, 
So it's kind of a weird experience. Wow. But I do a lot more classroom teaching now. And, and I'll be honest, it's good, right? It's good to be back in that setting, even though it's hard, because now it's hard. I have some students that are on a computer, some students that are in my classroom. Those change all through the week. Right. Yeah. It's all bizarre. And what's Storm Academy now? Is, there, is it two on, two off? Is it something like that? We're about to switch back to full time okay. with everybody, but it's been two cohorts, so half of them are, I wouldn't even say half, but two days a week I've got a group of students, then those go home, and the next time I have students that are on campus. They're different. How, right. However, there are within that, there are students who never come to campus. Okay. So I've got really three different cohorts, right? Okay. And that is hard. It's hard to like figure out how you're going to teach material that generally you would have preferred to bring them in the shop and right. you know do this or go to the light board and learn how to use a light board and you know can't do any of that stuff. Yeah. So. All right, let's take a break and finish up talking about just some personal stuff and your feelings about diversity and inclusion. Sounds good. Okay, Jake, let's talk about, I guess, a little bit more personal stuff. Um, one of the things about Together We Stand we try to do is focus on diversity and inclusion um, and also talking about communities of color. Um, it sounds like, based upon your resume, you've had experiences all over, all over the place. On a personal level, how do you view diversity and inclusion in your own life? Right. So, I... I I'm going to be frank. It's it's hard, right? It's hard. Uh, it, I was about to say something stupid. It's hard being white. It's that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever said. Um, it's hard to be a good ally or know how to be a good ally. Um, let me. I can tell you this: when we moved to Durham, North Carolina, I was really, really excited to be in a diverse population. I, I loved that my daughter all of a sudden was in a school where it just wasn't all white faces. Right. And she was graduating. Where did she go to school? Did she go to school she, at? She went to Parkwood Elementary right. first. And she, uh, she just, you know, she seemed to gravitate to all the students that didn't fit the world she had been in before, right? right. Just all white faces. Right. And we were really excited about that. We had a, a great rental house with a terrible landlord. Um, a really racist landlord, to be honest. She was from South America somewhere, but she, I can get into it in a second. We weren't happy with her for other reasons. And even though everything about where we were living was fantastic, we decided we needed to leave her home um, or stop renting from her. And we started looking around and we ended up moving to Apex. And we moved to Apex not because we wanted to get into a less diverse area, we found a house that was beautiful that we loved, and we were like, let's go move there. And Apex is a beautiful town, but it's like moving to the south, the southern version of Maine. Oh. It's just a bunch of New Englanders, it feels like, right? It, it was like all of a sudden we moved to a very white area, and it felt like we had just left what we look, were looking for. Um, so, but did you not before moving to Apex? Did you not look at the city itself, do some research? No, because certainly if you're moving from Durham to Apex, you know if Durham right now is about forty-eight percent people of color, if you go from Durham to Chapel Hill, which is about nine percent people of color, it's a big change. Yeah, it's a big change. I didn't, I didn't look at it at all. We didn't operate. We never have operated that way, you know. And I don't mean about not looking into diversity, not looking into any. We, I mean, I told you, we moved here in three weeks, right? Mm -hmm. We didn't research this area. We just knew we liked what it looked like, okay. right? We knew it'd be more diverse. That, was a, that played a factor. We knew it was more populated. That played a factor. A lot of things played into it, but we didn't research. And we didn't research when we moved to Apex. And so let me just tell you about my landlord. So we were going to have to break our lease, right? And I said to her, look, we need to move for a lot of reasons and I and I didn't tell her it was because we didn't appreciate how she was treating us but we just we needed to move I said but I'll help you find someone to take over the lease to to move in I can 
I can bring them in and show them around. We'll keep the place spotless because she didn't live here. She lives down in Miami. And I said, I will screen them. I'll put together all the stuff. I'll forward it to you. I'll do all of that, right? Well, it was not a very expensive rent. It was a beautiful neighborhood. And the majority of people who came were people of color. And they were wonderful people. I had like, I had a retired police officer who came. I had a, a young nurse. I had, and I remember the young nurse because she was just so excited. She had uh, younger kids and they lived in a bad part of Durham. And they were so excited. She was nearly in tears about how excited she was about moving into that neighborhood and that house. But the landlord wanted pictures ID, right? Wow. And everyone who was a person of color, she said no. And then it got ugly because I was like, what are you doing here? Like, these have been some really fantastic people. And I had been warned that she was prejudiced because I had a friend who was a neighbor who had helped her previously. Okay. It was a mess. And wow. I, I mean, I don't even want to get into all of it, but it got ugly. I actually called the state because I was wondering like how I should report it and because it was clear she was just factoring out everybody that was a person of color. But you, but you realize that type of behavior is kind of normal. Yeah, in America. well exactly, exactly. And it was so below the radar, right? Under the radar in the sense that like, oh, just send me their picture IDs. Well, why do you need to see their picture ID now? They're not, they, right. all they're doing right now is just looking, right? right? But she was just, psh, psh. it doesn't, it, they're black or they're brown, even though she was brown but they weren't the right brown for her, right? Wow, that's interesting. Um, yeah, she wanted, and my neighbor, who was a friend of mine, told me that he had been told by her, she wanted, oh, here's what he told me. When we walked in the door and wanted to rent the place, she had told him, the neighbor, she was so excited she'd found a good white family to move into her place. <laughs> there wow. had been some, I think some, wow. uh, maybe a Muslim family that had been living there prior to us, or so, I, I don't remember where they were from, but apparently she didn't have a good experience with that. So yeah, so we moved to Apex. It's a beautiful place, very white, and we were ready to move back to Durham. And so we moved back just down the road, right? Here to Durham. And it was such a great diverse community. Um, it is hard to make friends though. It's hard to like meet people in your neighborhoods without really actively like running around right. like, as a weirdo, like, hi, how you doing? Good to see you. But I was that guy. I mean, you ask my wife and daughter, they're embarrassed by me. I'm constantly like, just I'm out there waving and smiling and everything. And we had great neighbors on one side that we got to know pretty well, but we didn't like have dinners together or anything, right? right? And we had neighbors on the other side that it was harder. It was like multi-generational. So we had black families on both sides. The, the one that I was just talking about that we just never got together for dinner, we talked to them a lot. They had a daughter exact same age as our daughter. Um, but they, it's not that they had a lot in common. And Alyssa was busy with one type of school and their daughter was busy with another one, right? right. Their daughter was a swimmer, Alyssa was a soccer player. They just didn't jive with their schedules and everything. But they were great. On the other side, there were like three generations, grandparents who owned the home, the children, and then grandchildren. It's hard to really get to know them. You know, they were all going in different directions at different times and all of that. So, but I loved that neighborhood. I loved that house, but my daughter's into horses. And so uh, this summer, we made the switch to move to Oxford, North Carolina, which is, uh, it's diverse, but it's segregated, it feels like. Mm -hmm. And we bought a farmhouse 120 year old farmhouse that we decided to renovate which seemed really exciting because we watched too much HGTV uh, Clearly you did. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of work involved in that. Uh, I'm sure it's crazy But we you know, we thought okay, we're paying for boarding a horse We love that our daughter is into horses. We love the work ethic that's involved there We could stop traveling to a place to board and we could just own our own right and it was a beautiful lot you know, 10 acres is a lot of space. It has a pond. It's beautiful. Um, but it is a different world, and it does feel a little segregated. 
Jake, great to see you. And thanks again for your time. That's it for this episode of Let's Talk About Race, produced by Together We Stand NC. I'm your host, Tyrone Irving. We'll see you next time. Let's Talk About Race is developed and produced by Together We Stand NC in Durham, North Carolina. Our audio engineer and composer is Chris Fitzgerald.